If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 50. Luke chapter 9, 28 to 50. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter's said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. And as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. He will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. This this summer, our family is planning a trip, a vacation to the Black Hills of South Dakota. It's a, a trip that I've wanted to take for a number of years now, and we just haven't been able to to figure it out. Finally, we've got it planned. We've got the uh, campsites reserved and that sort of thing. And I can't wait to get there. And typically, when we have gone on vacation, we go straight to our destination. 
But we'll be hauling our pop-up, which I have held together with duct tape. <clears throat> and so we thought, you know, better, better not push it too hard. Don't want to go 11 hours in one day. And so we've planned some stops along the way, and one of those stops is at the Badlands. And it will, take, it will make the trip longer, sure, it'll add a few miles. And while I want to get to the Black Hills... And I hope that stopping in places like the Badlands adds to the trip rather than takes away. And I wonder if you know that actually Kansas has its own little Badlands. Did you know this? It has its own little Badlands. Just 30 or 45 minutes south of Oakley, Kansas, off I-70, there's a little Badlands. It's called Little Jerusalem State Park. I've driven to Colorado a dozen or more times knowing that it's there, and yet in my anxiousness to get to the mountains that I love, I've never taken the time to take my family on that little detour to see Little Jerusalem State Park. And it makes me wonder, and I was wondering as I prepared this sermon, I wonder if I've been missing something. I wonder if I've been missing something, that our, that our vacation would actually be enhanced in some way, that there'd be something that we would learn, some memory that we would make if we would just take the time to take a short detour to Little Jerusalem State Park. You see, those following Jesus, those of us who are following Jesus, we're headed somewhere, right? We're headed towards something, and there is an expectation to see the glory of God in our life and what He's going to do, to be on the mountain with Him, if you will, to see His glory work in whatever He's doing in and around and through us. But God throws detours at us, does He not? Have you ever experienced a detour in your life? Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe you can think back the time where it seemed like you were headed in a direction. It seemed like God was taking you somewhere, and then, and then something happened, and it was like a detour, and you're sitting here thinking, why, God, am I going on this detour? Why did I have to take that detour back then? I thought we were headed to glory. Why am I right now in this valley? There's no great view over here. What I hope to convince you this morning is this. God's detours are planned. God's detours are planned for your good and for His glory. That's what I want to convince you of from this story in the text in Luke this morning. And it is true for Jesus' mission in His life, and it will be true for us in the mission that God gives us in our lives. The question is, however, how do we navigate those detours? If they're going to happen, and let's be honest, we've all lived long enough, adults anyways, we've lived long enough to know they will happen. How do we navigate those detours? How do we navigate life? Because in a way, all of life, from the point in which 
God justifies us, the point in which he brings us to faith, to that point in which we come to glory, all of life, in a sense, is a detour, is it not? Have you ever thought why, at the moment you come to faith in Christ, in the moment that he has secured you for eternity, why does he not take you to be with him forever? It's where you're headed. You might say, well, we better. In a sense, all of life is a detour. Why are we on it, and how do we navigate it? Jesus and His disciples give us two pointers, I think, in this text to navigate the detours of life. First, we must keep our bearing on the mountain of glory. And second, we learn to walk through the valley of ignorance. I want to look first at how we keep our bearing on the mountain of glory. You see, I've done some hiking in the mountains, a little bit, <clears throat> not the most experienced, but the worst feeling when you're on, on a hike somewhere you've never been, the worst feeling is thinking you've lost the trail. You're walking along and all of a sudden you're looking and you're like, I don't see the markers and this, is this a trail or is this just some matted grass from a, 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 where the deers walk by? Am I lost? I mean, that is a scary moment, right? Now, I'm not as experienced in orienteering, right? But I have watched all the seasons of Alone, so I know a thing or two. No matter what detours are needed to get by whatever obstacles there are in front of you, you have to stay oriented towards your destination, and ideally, you can see it. Otherwise, it's too easy to get turned around to go in the wrong direction. When we're navigating the valley, we have to keep ourselves oriented towards the right thing. Our eyes fixed on the right thing. And what is it that sets our bearing in these detours? What is it that our eye is to be on? It is Jesus, who is, who He is and what He has accomplished in bringing His kingdom. That is our bearing. And, and let me give you three reasons why that must be our bearing. First, the first reason we see in the text is this. Reason one, Jesus fulfilled all of the law and prophets. Jesus fulfilled everything that happened before, every meaningful event in human history. Jesus was the fulfillment of all of it. And Jesus is on this mountain and he's praying. He's praying presumably all night, which is not uncommon for him, except something very uncommon happens. It says that his appearance begins to be altered. And suddenly he's, his face is changed. <clears throat> and it makes us think of Moses, right? After leaving the presence of God as they were wandering in the wilderness. But this is not a temporary reflection of God's glory. Rather, his face is altered so that he is the source of the glory. And there are two men with him. 
Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah, we might ask. There's, there's a number of explanations that people have put forward here. I think at the very least, we have to understand that Jesus is a greater fulfillment of both of these men. In Deuteronomy 18.15, we're told Moses himself declares that a greater prophet will come after him whom the people should listen to. Well, there's some connections to this passage, is there not? Prophecy that ties together Moses and God's presence and a mountain and the fact that they need to listen to this greater prophet, it all comes together in this story. Jesus is the substance of that which Moses was a shadow. Everything that Moses said, everything he wrote in the law, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And then we have Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, you couldn't you can't have everyone from the Old Testament show up on the Mount of Transfiguration, I suppose. So, so we picked out Elijah. Elijah is the key figure prophesying the new messianic age, the, the age the Messiah would, would bring in. Elijah was the uh, prophet supreme, if you will, of the Old Testament. An age that we've already seen as we've been going through Luke, that Luke keeps referring back to Old Testament passages saying Jesus is bringing this kingdom, He's bringing this age to, 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 to come right now. And so Jesus is not just the substance of who Moses is, but Jesus is the substance of everything that Elijah had foretold. All the prophecies of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ and what He is doing. So, most likely... These two, Moses and Elijah, were meant to sum up all of the Old Testament, everything that had come before. It's all about Jesus. If, if Moses and Elijah had their eyes on Jesus, if everyone in the Old Testament had their eyes on Jesus, if the Old Testament itself has its eyes, if you will, on Jesus, we must as well, because He's what everything is about. And the reason, too, that Christ Himself is what we ought to set our bearing on is this. Jesus accomplished God's deliverance. Not only was He what everything was leading up to, but He accomplished that deliverance. Moses and Elijah are having a conversation with Jesus as Peter and James and John come awake, right? You have this glorious thing. I imagine, you know, if, it, if someone's ever opened the curtains on you when you're sleeping, you know, got those blackout curtains. Someone opens them, oh, man, so bright. Wake up. I imagine they're sitting there. All of a sudden, this glory starts to shine. Oh, man, I was sleeping just fine. And who turned the lights on? Whoa. And they're having a conversation. And, and all of a sudden, Peter and James and John start to overhear this conversation midstream. And what are they talking about? They're talking about everything that Jesus must accomplish in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, it says, they're talking about his departure. Now, now, Moses and Elijah both, if you remember, had interesting departures from earth. You remember? Moses, it says, was buried by God. Moses goes off by himself. God lets him see the promised land, but he can't go into it. And there's no one else around, and it says he's buried by God. And Elijah, do you remember Elijah? Fiery chariot? taking him off. Elisha's sitting there like, whoa. They had interesting departures. But what 
You, you can imagine if Peter, James, and John are he, sitting here listening to, to this conversation about how Jesus is going to have this departure, and they know the stories of Moses, and they know the story of Elijah, they've got to be thinking, if, if Jesus is greater than these guys, how is he going to depart? I mean, that's going to be something. Second, second thing I'd like to highlight here about this departure is the term departure actually is literally the word exodus. That's the word in Greek, exodus. And I think that's intentionally used. It's not used very often in this way. And I think Luke intentionally uses it to cause us to actually think about the exodus. That the way in which Jesus is to depart is like the exodus. It is a deliverance for God's people. It brings about salvation for His people, delivering them from slavery and bringing them into a promised land. When it says, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, we, we think in Jerusalem, oh, we're talking here about his death and burial and resurrection, right? And, and it is that, but I don't think we ought to stop there. There's more that he accomplishes in Jerusalem. He also ascends. But even then, Jesus doesn't take his disciples with him to glory. He sends his spirit instead down. And, in, and Jerusalem becomes the epicenter of the gospel going to the world through the church as the Holy Spirit empowers them. That's part of what he's accomplishing in Jerusalem. So God's detour, God detours us for the purpose of his planned deliverance. Not just Christ's detour to deliver us, but he actually detours us so that we can bring about the deliverance he is bringing to the world. Another point here that I'd like to highlight is that it's a deliverance that Jesus has accomplished. You know, of course, in the moment that, 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 that this is happening, the disciples don't realize that He will accomplish this, but for those first readers, for Theophilus, as he's reading the Gospel of Luke, he knows it is accomplished. For us, we know it is accomplished. The victory is won. The deliverance that Jesus brings fulfills Elijah's words, has fulfilled them, and it exceeds Moses, not just in what it accomplishes, but but also in the way he accomplishes it. Think about this. Jesus' Jesus' departure. He won't be buried by God. He'll be raised by God, right? He won't ride out on a fiery chariot. He'll ride out on the clouds of heaven, all right? Because he is glorified, we know that so will we be glorified. And that brings us to the third reason that we must keep our bearing on Christ. Jesus reigns over God's kingdom right now. Right now, as we speak. Moses from Mount Sinai instructed the people as they came into the promised land, and he established the kingdom of Israel where God's presence was promised to dwell with God's people. But that was merely a foreshadowing of the fullness of God's kingdom. 
And from the cloud of God's presence on this mountain, God speaks. And what he says sounds a lot like what we heard at Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And I think this statement by God, not surprisingly, is the center of this entire passage. This is the big moment. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And what we have in this short three-phrase uh, three sentence is numerous, numerous allusions and quotations from the Old Testament. My son is a reference to Jesus being the coming king prophesied in Psalm 2, verse 7. The whole psalm is about what Jesus is talking about here. Chosen one is likely a reference to Isaiah 42, and you can read all of Isaiah 42 and get a picture of what God is talking about here. Listen to him, I already said, is a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15, and, and Jesus being the better Moses, bringing a better law in Christ. Thus, Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. Guys, get this. He accomplished the most important work in history. The glory of the mountain shows that he is to reign over all things. And we know that he's doing it now. But God's words, God's words here are a correction to Peter's suggestion, are they not? They're a response to something that Peter said. I love Peter. Sometimes he's, he's uh, what, what, fire the name, you know, kind of aim, fire, shoot, or whatever, however you say that. You know, it's, it gets the order off, you know. God's words are a correction to Peter. So what's the issue? The issue is this. The destination is clear, but the detours are confusing. That's the issue. The destination is clear, but the detours are confusing. You know what the destination is for you as a Christ follower. But the detours are confusing, are they not? Peter suggested, hey, let's make some tents for these guys. Uh, is it so good, Master, that I'm here? James and John are here with me. We can whip up some tents real fast. No lickety split, no problem. It'd be great. Now, the disciples, they, they want to stay there. The, the, the glory there at the Mount of Transfiguration would spread to fill the earth as the mountain of Eden ought to have filled the earth with the glory of the name of, of, of God, right? But, but, but Peter errs in his thinking. What is his, what is his error here? Well, it's, again, this is a disputed point. Perhaps Peter thinks that these three, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, are all equals, and that's his heir. Well, maybe, that, that, that could be. Or perhaps Peter's heir is that <coughs> he's thinking that, of the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember the Feast of Tabernacles that, that, the, that they would celebrate what, what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt by, by going and, and staying in tents and, and celebrating God's provision for them. It's a celebration that by this time, by the time of Jesus, would not only look back at, at Moses' time and what God did 
back then, but it would also was this became a celebration that would look forward to the time when Messiah would come and deliver them again and provide everything that they need. And so, you know, here you've got Jesus on the mountain of glory. Maybe he's thinking of Messiah. Maybe, you know, he, he, he just said, you are the Christ. He's thinking, all right, the time has come. Let's build some tents. Let's do this thing. The suggestion there would be then that Peter wants to go straight to the glory without the suffering. So some people say, well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's where he erred. But as I read the text, it says pretty clearly that Peter did not know what he was saying. Right? He, he didn't get it. Uh, oftentimes we don't get it either, do we? And so it's hard for me to, to think that Peter had this great plan for them to avoid suffering and get to glory somehow without suffering. I just don't think he understood it at all. He just said the first thing that came to his mind. Luke is clear. He doesn't get it. So it's hard to imagine the motivation is to avoid suffering. However, the problem is they don't understand how Jesus is coming to glory. You see, we see the destination and we think, that's great. Let's go now. Let's get there now. <laughs> we want to draw a straight line through the woods from where we are to where we are going, and if there's creeks or rivers or streams or whatever, we'll just go plow right over them, right? Maybe sometimes in our life we want to avoid suffering, but perhaps more often than that, we are willing to go through the suffering so well as we know how and what God is doing. But the reality is, is we don't know what we're saying. We're actually much more ignorant than we think we are. We actually know much less than we think we know. Jesus could have taken a beeline to glory, but He plans to bring a people with Him. In between the exodus and the promised land, what is there? There's a wilderness. There's a wilderness that has to be walked. And there's some things that need to be learned in that wilderness. And this is why the disciples must listen and learn. It's not just about knowing the end. It's knowing the means as well. It's not just about know, knowing where you're going to arrive, but it's about who you are becoming as you go. Jesus' mission isn't only to be enthroned in His kingdom in Jerusalem, right? But to deliver us into His kingdom. God's detours are planned for our good and His glory but we don't immediately understand how that will be. And so, we have to learn to walk through the valley of ignorance. And Jesus comes down off the mountain and into the valley. <clears throat> We've all had mountaintop experiences in our life with Christ, right? We want to stay there, but the valley is important. It's often in the valley where the, where the mountaintop experience is actually flushed out. It's often in the valley where the mountaintop experience actually settles deep down into our hearts and into our lives, where we begin to put it into practice, we figure out how to do that, where we learn, to, we learn how to apply it. 
And that's exactly what we're going to see in two sets of brief scenes. Each reveals lessons the disciples need to learn. In other words, the valley reveals why, for the sake of his disciples, Jesus can't go straight to glory. It's all snuck in here in a few brief scenes that at first glance may look unrelated to the transfiguration. But I think it's in this valley, in these valleys of our life, and and precisely because we don't understand how God is doing it, that we develop two invaluable qualities that God's people of Israel failed to grasp. Faith and humility. Say, if I could boil down the problem with God's people in the Old Testament, it came down to two things. They lacked faith, they lacked humility. They thought they could do it on their own. They thought that they were in because of, of, of who they were by blood rather than believing. And that's what we need to learn still today. In the valley, first we learn that God disguises great victories and apparent failures in order to develop faith. God disguises great victories and apparent failures in order to develop our faith. As they come off the mountain, a man whose son is seized by an evil spirit comes to Jesus. The nine remaining apostles have been down on the valley the night before. They've been trying to cast out this demon, and they've failed miserably, right? I I can imagine, as we're going to see, that this doesn't go very good for Peter, James, and John's pride, the, the three that weren't there, right? Here they are, getting to see the transfiguration, and they come down, and their buddies have failed to cast out a demon. Even though, just the chapter before, uh, Jesus had sent them out and they had been casting out demons. And so Jesus responds this way. He calls them a faithless and twisted generation. This is, again, a reference to that wilderness generation. Again, connections to Moses. Those who refused to have faith, those who stood on the edge of the promised land and saw the giants in the land and said, oh, that's scary. I I don't believe God for that, even though he just delivered us from Egypt. Crooked here is a reference to a generation that strays from walking the right path. This is the the purpose. That we would learn to walk rightly by faith. And so Jesus heals the boy, and the people are astonished at the majesty of God. But while they are still marveling, this, this next little bit happens. In our, in our Bibles, that, that adds this, uh, this little title that's not actually in the Greek. I just want you to know that. It's not actually in the Greek. Add, it adds it there in the middle of verse 43, and I just don't think it belongs there. This is all one story. This is all one scene. And what does Jesus say? He turns away from the crowds, and he turns to his disciples specifically, and he says, let these words sink in. Let these words sink in. This is really important for you to understand. The Son of Man, the one who will reign over everything, the one who you just saw transfigured on the mountain, will be betrayed by the hands of ordinary men. There's a play on words here. 
There's a play on words here. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Just ordinary guys. It would have been unthinkable. How could that happen to the Son of Man? They don't understand it. They don't understand the thing that Jesus says, get this. Get this. Make sure you get this. Let this sink in. They don't get it. In fact, it's not just that they don't get it. It's that it's concealed from them. Do you see that in text? It says it was concealed from them. Now, why would Jesus say, let this sink in, remember this, and then also conceal it from them? I think he doesn't intend for them to put it together right then. He wants them to remember because there will be a time later when it clicks. And when it clicks, then it will sink in. You know, you've experienced this where someone else who's wiser and older, maybe your parents or someone, says, hey, you need to understand this. This is the way it's going to be. You need to understand this. You need to do this. And you think to yourself, you, well, outwardly you go, uh-huh. But inwardly you think to yourself, I know, I know better. You don't realize. I got this. And then what happens? It happens just like they said it would. <laughs> and you go, well, maybe, maybe they're not so dumb as I thought they were. Maybe they know a little bit more than I thought they did. Maybe, maybe there's some things that I don't get. Maybe I need to trust them a little bit more and myself a little bit less. I think this is the best way for our faith to grow. I think it's interesting that it says that when they come off the Mount of Transfiguration, they kept silent and told no one in those days anything they had seen. But there would be a day when it mattered to tell people. It would be a day when everything clicked. You see, the best way for our faith to grow is to struggle through what appears to be right now failures. How could it be good for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of men? How could that possibly be a good thing? How could that possibly work out? But yet, so often, through apparent failures, God disguises His greatest victories. Through what looks like Him not being able to save His one and only Son, He saves many sons for Himself. We could trust God even when it doesn't make sense right now. Because this is the way that Jesus is producing a better generation than Moses did. And so the application in this point for you is this, trust God and do good. I love how 1 Peter says this, and I think to myself when I read 1 Peter, I don't know, I don't know for sure, but when I read this text, I think to myself that Peter is thinking of the transfiguration when he writes these words. Just the, 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 way, the connections in the text here, just, just listen to it. Beloved, he's speaking to the church. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory. And, the, and God rests 
upon you, just like that cloud rested upon them at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, when you suffer for Christ, the presence of God, it's, it's, it rests on you in and through the Spirit. You have no need for tents. You have Christ. I can't imagine that Peter is not thinking about what happened right here, right in this scene. And it's all, it's all clicking for him now. I get it. I get why he had us experience that. And we didn't go from there to the kingdom. We went from there down into the valley so I could learn that and I could see Christ die on a cross and I could fail and then he could, and he could restore me. And now I get it. And Peter finishes with this in verse 16. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We have a faithful creator. And he's our faithful redeemer. And just because you're on detour right now, does not mean he is not faithful because God's greatest victories are often disguised in apparent failures. And we can't muster up this kind of endurance to get through the valleys and detours of our life on our own. We must set our eyes on the mountain of glory. We must have our eyes set on Christ on his suffering, and on the fact that he has arrived in glory. The second lesson, the second big lesson that I think we need to learn in the valley is this. We need to learn that God does great work through apparent nobodies in order to develop humility. God does great work through apparent nobodies in order to develop humility. There's an irony of these last two short stories. I've already alluded to it a little bit. They're arguing about who's greater. They're, they're sitting here arguing about who's greater, maybe because of the failure of some of them to cast out the demons in the boy, right? I mean, just think about this. I can see it. They, they, the whole scene happens. They come off the mountain. The, they can't cast out the demon. Jesus cast out the demon. There's a short little interaction. They go to walk somewhere else. Jesus is out in front. They kind of hang him behind, and they're like, dude, that's embarrassing. That is embarrassing. Just last week, I cast out like a billion demons when Jesus sent us out. You couldn't cast out that? You couldn't do that? One little boy, you couldn't take care of it? That is embarrassing. I'm speculating a little bit here, but I but I think, I think it was John. I think it was John who thinks he's greater. And, here, and here's why. One, in other places, he's the, John, James and John are the ones who want to be on Jesus' right and left hand, right? To, to have the highest place in, when he comes to do his kingdom. So already I've narrowed it down to two people, but I'm pretty sure it's one of those two. James and John were both on the mountain, so they were not with the disciples who had failed to cast out the demon. So, you know, of course, they're going to be a little bit more, you know, have a little more arrogance there. 
But really what, what makes me center on John is in this second scene, it's John who answers. It's John who responds to the first scene, who responds to Jesus' words. You see, again, there's, they put this, this title, this subtitle over verse 49 that just doesn't belong there because John is answering to Jesus' words in verse 48. It's all one scene. It's not two scenes. And John says, hey, we saw this guy. We tried to stop him. You see, he's, he's, he's struggling with a similar confusion here. The point to it comes in Jesus' comments in both interactions. In the first interaction, Jesus knows their hearts, and particularly the way that they're reasoning about who is the greatest. And so Jesus pulls aside a child. Children at that time, they didn't really matter because of who they were. They mattered maybe because of who they might become as adults, but children themselves did not matter that much. Spending time talking to a child was considered sort of a waste of time. And so whoever welcomes a child in Jesus' name, he says, welcomes Jesus and welcomes the Father. That would have been a little bit like, whoa, really? A child? That's the one you're going to pull aside? Those who, would, those who the world would consider lowest, if they're connected to Jesus and to his kingdom, become the greatest because of that connection. Greatness does not come from inside of you, but by relationship, by connection to Jesus, the one who is greatest. Listen, Jesus isn't here to bring out your greatness. He's not. He didn't come to bring out your greatness. He came to unite you with the one who is great. That's what he came to do. Don't settle for thinking, what I need is someone to bring out my greatness. That will leave you in despair and disappointment. Because I'm just going to tell you, you're not as great as you think you are. What, what, what is inside of you, it actually isn't that great. What's inside of me often is not that great. What I need is I need God's Spirit in me. I need Christ united to me. I need someone different who is great, who is glorious, who is gracious. That's what I need. That's what Christ has come to do. And for that reason, those who are connected to Jesus value other people in a greater way, not because the person themselves is so great, but because we know the greatness of their creator. So receiving Christ's kingdom should cause us to place others higher in our eyes. The second interaction comes quickly afterwards. In fact, there's not any break, like I said, and John says, look, there's this other guy, and he was casting out demons, and I think that's a little bit ironic. The implication is that this nameless person who doesn't even get their name in Scripture is doing what they couldn't do for this boy just a minute before, right? And doing it, the implication is successfully, because why else would they want to stop him if he wasn't succeeding in casting out demons? How often, when you would like to do something for God and you're failing, do you resort to trying to stop someone else from doing something? More about your embarrassment, more about bringing that person down so you can feel higher rather than actually pointing to Christ. 
Maybe they assume that since he hadn't been invited into their little group, that he wasn't allowed. And we, listen, we tend to be harsh on the apostles here, but honestly, we make this mistake all the time, right? Jesus says, the one who is not against you is for you. Don't stop him. The one who's not against you is for you. He's doing a good thing. Listen, if you think, look, I'm just a nameless nobody. Who am I? I'm just a nameless nobody. No one's going to remember who I am. No one's going to tell a story about me. No one's going to write my biography. The only person who would buy it is my mom anyways. She wouldn't even read it. She'd be like, I already know that's boring. If you think you're a nameless nobody, listen. A child in the faith even. Those are just the kind of people God takes and uses to do great work. And yeah, maybe no one will ever know your name. But no one on earth will ever remember you in 100 years or in 200 years or in 10 years. But in God's kingdom, it matters. In God's kingdom, I wonder if one day we might not know who this man was that was casting out demons in Jesus' name, not in his own name. The point here is this. There should be a spirit of cooperation, not competition amongst us as believers. Of course, you know, of course this gets complicated because we're sinners and we sin against each other and there's disagreements around how we ought to do this or how we ought to do that. Nevertheless, even though, even though we may disagree with another Christian or maybe proclaim to us something different than another church, if, 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 if they're preaching the gospel and they're seeking to be submitted to Jesus, we can have friendly debates about how we ought to do things and all of that, but, but we ought not to actively work against them, Right? We ought not to actively work against them. Maybe, maybe we seek to correct them. Maybe we seek to go, hey, here, I got, there's, maybe you don't understand this about God's Word and I can help you and show you how to do that better. But we don't, we don't seek to stop them from doing what they're doing in the name of Christ. Application for you is this. Avoid comparisons and seek cooperation. There have been times, listen, I'll, I'll be honest, there have been times when I've sat in a room with other pastors lunch or whatever, listening to stories, someone says, oh, tell us some stories about what God is doing in your churches, and people are saying, oh, this, he's done this, and he's done that, and he's done that, and, 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 and it's just a tough time for me. And, and in those moments when I don't have a story, I don't feel like I have a story to share, and everyone else is sharing stories, oftentimes what happens is my heart finds their stories annoying rather than uplifting. Oftentimes, I find myself unreasonably skeptical of what they're saying rather than celebrating it. And that is wrong. That is sinful. That is pride in my heart. God puts us through valleys to weed that stuff out. Listen, you can choose humility or God will choose it for you by putting you through the valley. Amen? Listen, if they're not against Christ, they're not against me unless I'm against Christ. 
So foremost, we've got to do this with other believers in our own church. We're called to be like-minded. We're called to be united with one another. And listen, we can do this with other churches and with other ministries. There's, there's a place, guys, listen, we can't get into all the details of this, but there's a place for humbly evaluating whether a particular teacher or a particular ministry or a particular church is good or beneficial. If they're preaching the gospel, to what degree we ought to partner with them. Those are all good questions to ask. But the point is that I'm trying to get down to is this. That's different than the kind of prideful comparison we see here. Do we default to separation unless we have to cooperate, or do we do default to cooperation unless we have to separate? Ask yourself that question. And the way that you interact with other believers and the way you interact with other people that maybe think different or whatever, and the way we as a church interact with other churches, do we default to separation unless we have to cooperate? Or do we default to cooperation unless we must separate for some reason? There are reasons to separate, but what is the default? That takes great humility. God's detours are planned for our good and for His glory. But if we are to navigate them, we must keep our bearings set on the mountain of glory, and we got to learn to navigate the valley. Christ did not go straight to glory. He had other business to attend to. He had other things to complete that Peter and James and John could one day sit with Him in glory. And friends, they are. But even they needed to come along on the detour as well. Why? Because one day Christ would, would go to glory and they would remain on detour. Learning, pointing more people to that glorious mountain. Listen, all of life from justification to glorification is a detour. It's a valley we have to navigate, learning to be more like Christ, calling others to join us on this path to the mountain of glory. If you feel like you are on your way to some glorious mountains, and God has detoured you to the badlands of your own little Jerusalem. Or if you look back on your life and you wonder, why, God, did you detour me there? Why, God, did that detour happen? Listen, you may be dealing with some doubts and you need some faith. Or you may be dealing with some pride because you think you deserve better. But I want you to know that that detour is not accidental. It is not without a purpose. God planned it. So pay attention. Reflect on it. Because it's for your good and it's for His glory. So keep an eye on your glorious Savior and keep the other eye on the terrain in front of you that you might grow in faith and humility, that you might learn to bring others through the valley and to the mountain. In His grace and wisdom, this is how He brings us to glory so that we may not boast, but so that we might be prepared for Him. Don't miss your little Jerusalem. Let's pray.